This episode is sponsored by Voice123, the first online marketplace for voice actors with over 30,000 projects of all genres flowing through annually. It's a super useful tool for anyone who wants to take their storytelling to the next level. Got a creative project you'd like to bring to life? Download our free step-by-step guide at voice123.co slash in the envelope to successfully find the right voice for any of your projects. It can come from anyone. You just have to find it. Links are in the description below or on our website as well. Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the one-stop shop for actors and creators both above and below the line. I am your host, Vinny Mancuso, Backstage Senior Editor and Professional Entertainment Obsessive. I'll be your guide through every corner of the creative industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. Here you'll find intimate, in-depth talks with today's most award-worthy names in film, television, and theater. Along the way, we'll get advice on living your best creative life, relatable stories of the highest highs and lowest lows, and maybe, just maybe, a rare peak in the envelope. obsessed with the idea of like, you know, especially teenagers just doing the research, you know, read as many books and watch as many movies and listen as much music as you can so that you actually understand the stories that you're telling and in a way like honor them by continuing that that legacy, which is really like the great human story. Welcome to another episode of In the Envelope, the actor's podcast. I am your host, Backstage senior editor Vinny Mancuso, and joining us today is the incomparable Natasha Leone. Now, as you can see in the runtime down there, we only talked to Natasha for about 40 minutes, but I could listen to her go on and on about movies pretty much forever. Uh, she is a walking cinema encyclopedia molded by many, many rep screenings at New York's Film Forum. Uh, and you just, you get that passion for film history in every word she says. You can definitely feel it in episode eight of Poker Face, co-written, directed by, and starring Natasha Leone. Now, all of Poker Face is great. Uh, it is a murder mystery of the week series from Brian Johnson, What's Not to Love, but episode eight, specifically the Orpheus Syndrome. It's not only a showcase for Natasha's very quickly growing talents as a director, as someone behind the camera, it's also just a love letter and a throwback to handcrafted, practical effects-driven filmmaking, uh, the type of stuff they just don't make anymore. And because of that, as you can imagine, Natasha has a lot of thoughts on the rise of generative AI in the entertainment industry. Uh, we actually start this very conversation talking about what she had to say about AI at this year's Times 100 Gala. I urge you to go watch that because like everything Natasha does, it is so funny and so real at the same time. Uh, watch that first and then come back for this very, very informative and lovely and hilarious chat. Let's get right into it. Here is Natasha Leone. I just wanted to tell you um, right off the bat, how much I appreciated your um, intro at the Times 100 
related to chat GPT as backstage as people who cover the entertainment industry. We're also very interested in the in the AI of it all. Uh, and I really, really appreciated what you had to say about it and everything. I encourage people to look it up. Thank you so much. I wrote that with my friend Jacqueline Novak, and uh, who's a wonderful Mensa player. And um, yeah, I guess it was really on my mind. They said, what's on your mind? And AI is deeply on my mind. I would say almost at all times. I am agog that that is not the headline conversation on everyone's minds, considering that it's uh, so obviously about to change the world so radically for all of us in all of our fields so quickly. I find it really interesting, especially coming from you, because, you know, I, I just recently watched the episode of Poker Face that you directed. It's what we're here to talk about. And what struck me this time is how much it is an ode to handmade storytelling, you know, the hands-on human-created work. And I'm just curious what that through line throughout, you know, your acting career as you turned into writing and, and filmmaking, how important that sort of handmade quality is to you as a as a creative. Well, yeah, I mean, we certainly talked a lot about that with this Nick Nolte character who's um, obviously based on Phil Tippett. And, you know, that to tell that story in the first place is is Ryan Johnson's idea. He's the the great mastermind. And I love him. And I'm staring at this giant poster of Columbo that he gave me uh, as we speak. And you know, I think it was so much about that, about um, old world meets new world and like this kind of like these newfangled kids versus the old way we used to make things. And, you know, if nothing else, I am a huge uh, proponent of tethering to some kind of lineage, like no, you know, no, you're not the first. And I just feel like I, I am obsessed with the idea of like, you know, especially teenagers just doing the research, you know, read as many books and watch as many movies and listen as much music as you can so that you actually understand sort of the stories that you're telling and in a way like honor them by, you know, continuing that that legacy, which is really like the great human story. I, I say that, I guess, as somebody who's also run writer's room with like, you know, young kids who have sometimes like not seen the movies I'm talking about, you know, like these Fellini references or something. And it's, it's very challenging because you almost have to like stop and be like, so in eight and a half, what happens is, and it's just very weird to me that, you know, you find that there's, you know, people who are making things that don't understand the shorthand of like all that jazz or once upon a time in America, like there are certain sort of tent poles that I think are essentially, you know, a hero's journey that must, you know, and the ways in which you can break form. And it is a, a, a something really worth preserving what, you know, Nick Nolte's character, Arthur, is sort of pitching is this, you know, hand handmade way of doing something versus, you know, CGI, like this kind of like stop motion and sort of like the slow art m movement in a way, um, you know, that's been so taken over by these other things. And uh, just to say, I mean, I think so many of these other things are really, it's like Terry Jones' character says, I think you would have really loved it if you gave it a chance, you know, like, there is so much magic in this new technology as well. It's just that, you know, there's a way to do it that has sort of poetry to it. And then there's a way to do it that just like eliminates the humanity in it. And I think that ultimately that is sort of like where Nick Nolte's character has been left behind in the story that we were telling. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I hear you say something like that. And it's, I think that's the reason why something like you know, the film forum, which I, I believe you're a board member is so important because it, it there should always be sort of a space in my mind for people to to 
be interested, at least be interested in seeing that history. I think it's really interesting that you you talk about people not knowing the shorthand, but it, it, it you can tell when somebody is coming from a place of knowing their history. And I, I think that that's very apparent in your in your work. Yeah, maybe to a fault, you might argue. Because I'm like, <laughs> hey, fuck it. Let's make a, let's make a Nick Rogue uh, Bergman season. That'll be fun. Um, but I'm certainly very proud of it. You know, like I'm I'm very proud of doing the kind of you know, trying to stay out here fighting the good fight of really like, um, you know, I, I believe in it. I, I guess it's just really movies are my my lifeblood in a way. And obviously that's only because of terrible parenting that I don't have other things to cling to. But here I am. Um, and I, 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 I love a deep cut reference or like an Easter egg. And um, I think something I really love as a director is just filling the frame with sort of an abundance of information, whether that's in Russian doll or whether that's, uh, you know, in this poker face episode, like it's just such a, a lucky episode to, to get to direct um, because of all of the creatures and all of the background and like Arthur's warehouse is just so dense. And, you know, you'll see like a sort of screaming head in the background or you'll see like, you know, like the face, like half of Hitchcock's face or like a, um, you know, a, a monster. And also Phil Tippett himself was so generous with sending us so many of his creatures. And it just, you know, I, I, it, it really, it, when I look at a frame, it just makes my uh, shoulders sort of drop. I get very relaxed seeing that kind of, that much information. And I, I guess I would say that for some reason we seem to be in this uh, era, this sort of sickness around uh, like simplicity and, you know, like the, whatever this is like smooth motioning on the TV. Like I tried so hard last night. Uh, I was sitting here like trying to change the settings on the television. I mean, they just want to make it look as bad as possible. The motion smoothing for the love of God, like just please get rid of it. How like it's so criminal to sell a television like that and to tell people that like as somebody who makes things, I mean, the heartbreak when you see your own work with that on it it's just it really it's very painful in your soul and to watch other people's work in that way it's literally like a fully different experience i was actually watching um you know dead ringers the kind of cronenberg remake with uh rachel weiss who i thought was just fucking brilliant in it and it looked really good and i'm pretty sure i got this so that that helped me know that either i'd done the settings correctly or that they were ahead of the game and had because prior to that, I watched another show that I won't name, although I'm very inclined <laughs> to, that I will say almost seemed like it was written by AI entirely and that that was this very destructive future that we're up against. Uh, it was a very, very big show uh, on the same network. Interesting. Well, I will let the the viewer <laughs> look into what other shows are on the same network. And it was a it... hell of a it was a hell of a double feature, I'll tell you. That much. <laughs> and uh, Dead Ringers definitely won that race. Absolutely. I am, you know, I, I, I am always curious with the, those, those settings, you know, the, the motion smoothing is for, cause it does seem to make everything look worse and not just look worse. It takes away a lot of the, like you said, the innate humanity of, of good filmmaking and the, the, you know, the grain and the motion blur and stuff like that. That to me is part of, part of watching a movie. You've got to pay for that. So like, I mean, if you knew the amount of hours and obsession that go into this, like also, you know, the live grain is a special specific kind of a thing. Then you're to the a line item on your, you know, budgets and and then the color correction i mean it just the entire show can fall away and it's devastating my sense is it's for sports i think or it might just be this like greater mission that the world is after of like leading us towards full idiocracy so they just 
want us to see lesser images so that we all get dumber collectively and stop noticing, you know? Um, maybe that's the ultimate plan here, strategy. I, I'm just, I have no idea why somebody would want that. Uh, but it really, it's one of these like subtly treacherous, dangerous things that I think are uh, harmful in deep ways. It almost is like, um, you know, it's part of like the same disease that kind of has, you know, Photoshop images that give young girls body dysmorphia or something. It's all like part of the same weird futuristic sickness that we're in. And vis-a-vis uh, -vis filmmaking it is really uh, devastating. I, like, I think everything you just listed, it just works to get rid of the, the human nature of art, which is, which is like kind of the whole point of watching it, making, experiencing it. One would think. And yet here we are. I mean, maybe they're the majority. And, you know, I often think about stuff like this. I'm like, maybe I'm just an old person sort of like railing against like, you know, the good old days when you couldn't see the movie. Uh, it's like that's uh, put some Vaseline on the lens, for God's sake, would you? <laughs> Like maybe I'm just sort of this dying breed who's like a last man standing, but certainly it gives me a lot of solidarity and ease of understanding how to, you know, um, empathize with uh, Arthur Nick Nolte's character. That's for sure. Yeah, I was I was going to ask how you know you. There is a lot of not a lot. There's a massive throwback nature to your episode of Poker Face. So the episode you directed, of course, you star in and and Exodus could produce everything. But the episode you directed is baked in this. You know, it's obviously Vertigo is the big hinge point, but there's there's just a throwback nature to all of it. And it seems like people these days are responding to these to these homages. So I'm curious how you feel about the idea that in this age of where it seems like oh the technology is winning, people are responding to, to sort of a throwback you know, doing interesting things with the camera and canted angles and, you know, not just putting it on the sticks and letting it sit. How have you felt about the reaction, the positive reaction to you? You're sort of trying to put throwback style, you know, oh, in modern days, sorry. First of all, I'm so grateful. You know, I know I seem like a tough New Yorker, but I'm a hypersensitive type. That's how I ended up here. Um, so I think it's a pretty common uh, duality. Uh, but I, I just want to mention also that like all this kind of, you know, the slow Altman zooms and all of that is really also baked into the DNA of Ryan's work. And mm -hmm. in general, like, I mean, so many of our early meetings of like thinking up this show are based in our shared love of this very lineage. And of course, even lead to a show that is inherently a throwback on some level. Um, and of course, you know, his wife, Karina Longworth, who's my friend, who is how I, you know, come to know Ryan is, uh, I mean, one of the great are great keepers of this, you know, what I believe to be a crucial history. So, you know, I think he definitely is uh, setting the tone, even as like Steve Yedlin, his, uh, you know, incredible cinematographer is sort of also or um, sort of simultaneously so ahead of all of the technology, like he's really into all that. And so is um, Jaron Presence, who's, who shot the episode, The Orpheus Syndrome with me and so like it's interesting watching that marriage sort of happen correctly like when it clicks there can be also a real magic to that and i don't remember the first part of your question <laughs> it's just it's it's kind of it's just a broader question of of how you see it's almost like old is new again you know you 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 do these homages and people respond positively to it so i'm just curious as someone who's doing more and more directing how you see the evolution of baking in these homages into it and the reaction to it yeah, like, well, I know what the other thought I had when you asked that question was, was like, you know, when Kurt Cobain appeared, it was really 
the, you know, it's like we were so hungry for something real and raw coming out of all that pop. I do think that sort of pop culture works in phases. It feels like, and and I think that Poker Face is so special because it sort of, it hits both notes. You know what I mean? Like there's something about it that feels like, you know, uh, immediate and of this moment, but also has space in it to be a throwback. I do in general, though, think that historically we've always seen that, you know what I mean? Like that the whatever, like sort of like the uptight nature of the, the 50s led to like the revolution of Easy Riders Raging Bulls or something. And and th- there's always been that kind of call and response and culture. I just think we're in a particularly weird moment where, you know, it's kind of getting away from us as these sort of like corporations are taking ownership over the arts. Um, it's getting harder and harder and sort of more and more narrow. Um but then again, you know, everything everywhere all at once is what won the Oscars. So I guess that's promising. I mean, certainly in the realm of new ideas, we'll always find a way to to win the day, like radical acts or something. It's just I, I do think there's a you know danger to telling people that, like, you know, brightly lit, crisp things that make perfect sense are good storytelling because on a deeper level. And I guess this is really like maybe more what Russian Doll is about. I think that there's actually a a human danger there that is a risk for like, uh, you know, like sort of soul sucking shame that can make people feel like when they're watching it, like they're doing their lives wrong, you know, because that's just not what life feels like. It's not crisp and clean and tidy and everything sort of falls in its right place and every hair is in place. Like, and I think it's, uh, you know, I always worry about the kids, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's dangerous for them to think, I think it's, uh, probably a, a a lot you know safer for them to be watching like dog day afternoon or something and saying like oh maybe this is what maybe it's normal to feel like i'm a person i imagine that that sort of paints a clear picture you know or like anything cassavetes has ever done or something might be a, a safer way to you know understand why you feel uncomfortable inside yeah i think that's almost part of the power of the case of the week nature of poker faces it it, it sort of drops in on all different kinds of situations from all different kinds of, um, of 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 genres almost and it's always a complicated situation where there's right and wrong but it's you you almost get 10 versions of that in one season so it kind of show it, and it's it's just completely different each episode so you're sort of getting another slice of uh the weirdness of life with each episode yeah i think that was something that was really exciting um that and important to ryan and and really cool for me it was just the idea that um, Charlie would be falling into kind of like all of these pockets, you know, I, I guess in Russian Doll, I remember in the room, we would talk a lot about noir in general and how you end mm-hmm. up in these noir films kind of falling into these little pockets that are accidental. You'll see in those kind of old movies that, you know, the detective will have to kind of have just like one quick conversation, but the character is so eccentric, you know, you never see them again. And it's in some weird back room that they found and, we sort of, uh, you know, we try to play with that game there. And I think here you sort of see an extended version of that. Of like, It's so fun that you see this kind of desert rat character who's kind of like, you know, Jeff Bridges, the dude sort of ambling through the situation, like lazy. Uh, it's not Gene Hackman in, in, in um, French Connection. It's Gene Hackman in like uh, night moves, you know, later in his career, like lazier. And of course, that's obviously very Peter Falk and that kind of a thing. But just somebody who sort of doesn't necessarily want to be anywhere, but actually loves people and just hates injustice and is sort of like almost a mathematician or like a puzzle solver by nature who's like, ah, that seems off. Let me go fix that. But 
you know, to get to go into so many pockets that are not the usual things we see um, is, I don't know, it really a, appeals to the sort of Kerouac part of me. So in terms of, you know, you, you've done a fair amount of directing at this point, and, and I, I mean, you will be doing more directing in the future. In terms of like on the day, on set, do you think you've noticed yourself developing a definable act, a directing style? Do you have something that's really worked for you? Or is it, is it, is it something where it really does just depend on the situation? Um, so, I mean, I would say that I'm somebody who seems, I think it's probably that because I have that big hair, it might seem like, <laughs> you know, or an attitude problem, probably. It seems like I'm, but I'm actually, I'm pretty uh, obsessive, just hyper prepared, you know? So I think a lot of what people register is like, you know, like, wow, it seems so natural or something. Mm -hmm. It's actually just that I'm, you know, so obsessive that I'm trying to make it seem like it's like, you know, rolling off my tongue or something. And so I would say that that's with acting, I guess. But um, and obviously that being like that level of preparedness prepares you for improv. You know, that's when improvising becomes fun. Like you can always tell that like sort of an actor doesn't really know their lines when they get very like obsessed with their props as if the props are making them forget their lines or something. You're like, nah, dude, you're just not prepared. Like it's, it, it's much more fun to be able to play with your props because, you know, you know your line so well that now you can improvise something about, hey, this lighter doesn't work, you know, because you can get right back into the mini monologue or whatever and stay focused rather than completely lose everything because there was one distraction, you know? And I would say that as director, I'm I basically similarly obsessive so i'm like fully storyboarded totally shot listed like i have like a photo of every angle every location and for very similar reasons of i want to be able to be loose when i get there meaning like open to those changes you know i'm sort of by nature like a bit of a merry prankster and a surrealist and kind of like i like keeping it sort of mischievous so the best way i've found to do that is by being so obsessive of feeling like you know and i i just i like i guess i like you know like the math of movies and this like sort of it's going to be like a split diopter that it's going to like have a, a married b-side to it that kind of a game you know like i just i just like knowing in a way what the edit is going to be even as that changes and evolves on the day i also do this thing where um like Sam Rockwell some years back introduced me to his acting coach, Terry Knickerbocker, because obviously, you know, I mean, I'm basically a high school dropout. I guess I was uh, skipped, you know, my senior year of college by Tish to be in the, their film program. And it's going to be a film and philosophy double major. And I thought I was going to be like, oh, you know, I'll be like Albert Brooks or whatever. And I'll maybe, you know, do this sort of like Bergman meets comedy thing. I guess I just come off working with Woody Allen, who at the time was very popular, I'll remind you. And I was like, since I've already played his daughter, now I can just start, you know, making movies and the more philosophy I know, the funnier the jokes were going to be that I can write. And then I'll work with all these, you know, incredible cinematographers like European cinematographers and sort of do these uh, funny, weird stories um, as a director. But ultimately, you know, I dropped out of that program, and just went to the film forum and learned it all there. And I don't know, I, I guess I, you know, I, I love the sort of like ob obsession with form is I guess uh, what I mean by that so um, anything that feels like very purposeful and intentional is great and then so yeah I was a dropout so I'd never really taken any acting classes or any filmmaking classes and anyways Sam Rockwell introduced me to this guy Terry Knickerbocker 
And I started working with him really um, like in season two of uh, Russian Doll when I was, you know, going to be directing like half the season with Alex Bono, who I adore. I wanted to make sure also because it was during COVID that, you know, we weren't going to get any rehearsal time really on set with the actors and everybody was going to be so masked up. So I went over like in detail every single line of each script to make sure that every character's kind of like motive was spoken for so that if any of those actors had questions on the day, it wasn't just like I knew as Nadia what I was going to be doing, you know, or I knew as a director how I was going to be shooting it, but I was going to be able to answer and then went through it with each of them to make sure that they felt comfortable. So like, let me like change any of your, like bring me your beefs now because we won't have time on the day when I'm playing, you know, Jughead, meaning like, you know, one man banding this thing. So. I found that really helpful. And so I also did that with Terry on this like poker face episode or just making sure that like, you know, somebody like Cherry Jones, who's so high level and incredible or Luis Guzman or Nick Nolte that I wasn't going to be in it or for myself, like when I'm directing myself that I'm really buttoned up in terms of like knowing where the person is coming from in all directions, sort of their, their history and their things. So, so, you know, I mean, I love actors and kind of their take on it, what they bring to it. Just there's this magical sort of third thing that happens when all of the elements are happening. Like when like Tracy Gigi Fields, who's so incredible, our costume designer and uh, Marcel and Amy, who I'd also worked with on Russian Doll and on Poker Face, you know, like I had worked with Tracy before also um, in something else I directed. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you get these teams together and Jaron and I were working so closely on, you know, all the shots and kind of like spending all our downtime kind of going back to the locations and shooting them from every direction just like on our you know artemis just to make sure that it was like you know no stone unturned and then this magical third thing happens where you have this like very marked up script you know with like all your all this information and at a certain point it's like you realize that you you know enough about what questions are going to come up that there's like a this like free spirit to the answers and sort of that's where it gets really fun basically. And that's when you're like sitting there with the zoom gun at the monitor and wearing your little earphones and your fucking headset and your hats on backwards, your hair's all crazy. And you're like, now this shit is fun. And it's very, that's when I feel like my most Fosse-esque and I'm like, this is now I'm having a good time. I really are. Maybe I feel most Fosse-esque when there's like, a big scene like that final scene with Terry Jones and all the extras. That's when I really enjoy almost playing like choreographer, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of a, there's a real um, joy to that too. But I don't know. I mean, it's if you're getting to watch Nick Nolte's face and like this fucking really tight close up and he's just watching, you know, when he's sitting there seeing sort of like the reality of the day of this, you know, accidental death happen. Uh, to Rowan Blanchard on set and he's sort of like seeing his life that he's sort of spent, you know, fucking decades of his life thinking that he murdered somebody and he was wrong, you know, and you have like a face like Nolte and you just get to be so close on it. It just, it feels so visceral when you're standing there watching him go through that thought process. It's it's really like, it's an incredible you know, feeling basically to see artists get to do their thing. Yeah, I was I was actually going to ask because there is, you know, like you said, there's there's just so many great held close ups on either Nick Nolte or Cherry Jones. There's a there's the scene where they're just sort of, you know, they're talking around a fire and it's just 
like you said, you're just sort of watching years of their relationship play out over their face. So I'm curious, you know, you're an actor, director, when you are just sort of letting the performance speak for itself, what are you doing to get it? I mean, I'm very like in there, like I'm pretty, (laughs) like I'm on the ride. Like I'm like, this is, so I'm like standing there like next to, you know, Jaron at the monitor. And I'm like, literally like my fingernails are like digging into him as I'm digging into the zoom gun going closer and closer, like, you know, and um, like, he's like calling into the operator to like, you know, just move over ever so slightly. So we get a little bit more fire, like the fucking, you know, whatever that, uh, oil off the fire on their faces their faces morph just a little i'm like i can't believe what's happening i'm like fully invested in it and then also simultaneously like taking notes on my arms of just like little small things that we got to just you know dial in or whatever and you know sort of like running up to them like sort of excited but then you get there and sort of one of the gifts of being an actor first is like you understand that actors are a little bit like cats So even if you go out there with all this energy from being at the monitor and you're so excited, you get out there and you realize that like Nick and Cherry are in their own state of mind, you know, and then you're sort of in this dance of like, whoa, 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 I got to bring my thing down to their level of their in their vibe right now. So I got to go real slow. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was great. Like, I got to get in the fire with them instead of sort of breaking their spell by giving them like notes that are too distracting you know what i mean like so you just like you're trying to just sort of like sink into this sort of third reality with them and just tweak it ever so slightly like to remind them like you know oh if you don't say that line before that line instead of after it the sentence doesn't make sense but do it your way if you must you know what i mean and like you back away slowly um and you kind of you know it's also really it's just funny as as somebody who's an actor director to notice so many things that I like I wish other directors knew about, you know, like if you sort of like call out to somebody like and let's get Cherry's hair back in place. Like now poor Cherry, all she's going to be thinking about or any fucking actor is going to be thinking about their hair. Like was my last take usable, you know, so it's like, you know, the right way to do it is you kind of go over fucking Marcel and you're like, by the way, I'm going to move that over a little bit. It's covering, you know, her eye and like he can gently do that in a way that kind of keeps her in her zone, that type of like, there's all these sort of subtle tricks of sort of like how to keep people in a third reality that I actually really think extends to the entire crew of like, what was beautiful about working with the poker face crew is like, we'd been at it for, you know, several months by the time I was directing such that it was just so loving to like watch. I I was, just so I, I'm so grateful, you know, because they really like the whole crew got on the ride, you know, with us of like, you know, the gaffer, like, you know, it was really everybody sort of gets in the same spirit of just making sure that that precious sort of third ether fucking place that you're playing with, you know, for anyone who's done acid, you understand this very easily. But, you know, like there's this other there's like like life has layers, you know, and basically to me, it seems like in a way decent, let alone great filmmaking is like that you're able to access it in, in really any field, you know, so that even, you know, like for the operators, like for everybody starts to know how to kind of like work as a team to kind of hold that space as a very precious, it's a very, you know, you can like break the spell very easily. 
So I don't know. I guess uh, that's a long-winded way of sort of giving you some type of answer. No, it was lovely. It kind of reminds me of, I ran into this line that Cherry Jones said about being directed by you. And she said, Natasha's got you and she's not going to let you fail. And that kind of that kind of sounds exactly like what you just said. It sounds like a, a really great way, a really human way to create art that we don't think AI can can possibly replicate at this juncture. At least not yet. <laughs> it's not yet. Natasha, I, I could probably listen to you talk about film for hours, but our time has come to an end. But uh, thank you so much for being here. This was this was truly, truly wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our brilliant producer, Jamie Muffet, and to the whole team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com, and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage with code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. 100% free, you simply cannot beat that. For more exclusive content, find us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope, and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who should we interview next? Let us know. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another peek in the envelope.